Are you awake now? Thank you, John. It is truly astonishing that whether symbolic or literal, the idea of water that is mentioned in the Gospel of John is just that, truly remarkable, astonishing. Whether we're talking about literal water, H2O, or we're talking about the metaphorical sense of water, the first seven chapters of John, every single chapter has something in it about water. Isn't that amazing? Now, of course, you might say, well, it's not too amazing because in a very dry and arid Mediterranean climate like the homeland, the Palestine of yesteryear, it's not too difficult to think about the significance of water. It's indispensable, really, and of course that's true. But that which God takes to heart and then uses in His creative power and genius to talk about the metaphorical significance, the spiritual significance of water, is amazing to me. Look at some of these references in the Gospel of John to water. Look, for instance, in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 26. John answered them, that is John the Baptist, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. That's an interesting statement. I I baptize with water, John the Baptist said, so that for the purpose that He, Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. You might deduce something of its opposite. No water, no revealing of Christ. Baptizing with water, the revealing of Christ. Look at verse 33. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Do you see the parallels there? Baptizing with water, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Look at John chapter 2, verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Significance of of water. And then verse 11, This is the first of His signs. The signs of turning water into wine that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of what? Water and Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does he mean by water here? He means, of course, spiritually speaking, unless you are washed with the water of the Word of God. And you saw that when we preached through that and we interpreted that water there, not literal, but spiritual. The water of the washing of the Word of God. You need to have the Word of God come into your life as a, as a flood, as a, a washing, as a cleansing of your soul. And you need to have the Spirit regenerating your heart. And yet He uses this wonderful metaphor of water in John chapter 3. Look at verse 22. After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside and He remained there with them and was baptizing. 
John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Interesting, this continual mention of water. Look at John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there in Samaria, called Sychar. And Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, that is, the well of water. And then, of course, those famous words in verse 10. Jesus said to the woman at the well, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you what? Living water. You see the significance of this concept of water, both literal and metaphorical? Look at verse 14. Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, in a dry, arid condition like that in Palestine and in the Mediterranean climate that was so, so much like ours in some respects, that when there's a drought, people can think so much more about water. The satiation of water for their bodies and, of course, using that spiritually, Jesus says, let me tell you about water. You might want desperately water for your parched body, but I'm going to give you water that will well up to eternal life. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, that is a pool of water, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. This is again speaking about water. Verse 7, the sick man answered Jesus when Jesus said, Do you want to be healed? And he said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And of course, you know, Jesus healed him instantaneously. Another mention in chapter 5 of water. How about chapter 6, verse 1? After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Another reference to water, this time very literal, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And then verse 16 of chapter 6. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, another reference to water, of course, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, walking on the water, and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus had command of the water. Why? Because Jesus invented water. No wonder he has command of it. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me shall never, what? Thirst. Again, taking some of these literal references to water, And then using them symbolically to say, if you will take a drink of that which I can give you, you'll never thirst. And now John chapter 7. John chapter 7. You would think that maybe the Apostle John in capturing these words and doings of Jesus Christ would say, all right, enough of the water already. We're going to move on to some other spiritual reality. or We're going to uh, dispense with the idea of talking about water. But no. In John chapter 7, verse 37, the Bible says, On the last day of the feast, 
the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now what is Jesus talking about here, particularly in this reference in John chapter 7, where we find ourselves in our exposition? What is he, what is he referring to, this living water? What, what does he mean when he says this in his teaching ministry? Because clearly this is what he's doing. He's teaching in this area. He's in Jerusalem. He's standing as a rabbi, as it were, before the people, and he simply blurts out in a commanding way, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Did, did Jesus just, just blurt out something like that, uh, and, and there was no context? There was no understanding of what he might mean by this. Why is Jesus using this idea of water? Uh, Why does John speak so much about water in the first seven chapters of his gospel? Why is this uh, so commanding, this this metaphor? What's going on? What's the point? Uh, What's the context for all of this? Well, what What I want to do this morning is show you exactly why Jesus is talking about himself as the dispenser of living water. I want you to go back in your Old Testament all the way to the book of Leviticus. And I want you to see the Old Testament history behind what's going on here in chapter 7. Because what's going on here in chapter 7 of John's Gospel is they are, as Jews, celebrating what has, been come, what has come to have been known in their circles as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. You see, what was happening, according to their tradition, and according, actually, to the command of God that we'll read here in a moment, they were commanded by the Lord through the Mosaic legislation to celebrate on a certain week that culminated their entire celebration of the Lord in Jerusalem. These pilgrims would come every year to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate. And this particular celebration, a week's worth of celebration, a week in length, was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And what this meant was the following. In, of course, their wilderness wanderings, the Jews were supposed to give glory to God because He led them through all of those years of that wilderness wandering and they were supposed to give Him glory. Glory because He was faithful. Glory because He protected them. Glory because He gave them water. Glory because He gave them light. And they were commanded by God to institute a yearly blessing, a feast, a festival, so that they could celebrate that God was faithful in doing what He commanded them that He would do, and that was that He promised to bless them if they would do what was right. He he promised to bless them by protecting them all the way through those wilderness wanderings so that they might get to the promised land. And if you look in your Bibles at Leviticus chapter 23, here's where the Bible speaks of God through Moses instituting this feast of booths. Now, the idea of tabernacles or booths was simply, do you remember in the wilderness wanderings where they would go from place to place to place and they would have to construct these temporary booths, these temporary homes where they would dwell. And then God would move them on and they would set up their booths in the next place and they would live there and they would sojourn there and they would do everything they they could to make sure that they were cared for by the Lord and He would bless them abundantly and He would give them food and He would give them shelter through these booths. And the whole point of God instituting this idea of a festival was so that they could remember back, they and the children after them, that God was faithful. Look at Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, 
And for seven days is the feast of booths, or tabernacles, to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. That would be a a Sabbath day. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord protected them and gave them food to eat. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. On the Sabbath prior... They were to praise the Lord for His abundant provision. And then seven days, they would have a festival. And then on the eighth day, they would have this holy convocation where they would thank the Lord for His provision and they would offer a food offering to the Lord. It would be as though they were saying, Lord, because You fed us, now we want to return the favor and give this food offering to You as a convocation, as a a thankfulness to You. Verse 37, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, bird offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. In other words, in addition to the things that you're already doing, and the things which you are called to do regularly, this is a holy week, an entire week given to all of these offerings, so that you, in a, in a crescendo, in a culmination of your praise and your thankfulness to me, you are to do these things. Verse 39, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in, the pro, gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest with these days in between. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as the feast, as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know. Here's the whole point of it. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. This is a major feast time. And from the beginning of those days all the way, my friends, to the very first century A.D. The Jews celebrated just this way. And guess what? They do so even today. This is, this is the festival of the Lord. Look at Numbers 29. Numbers 29. There's even more specificity that's given at the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 29, verse 12. Listen to the intricate detail and the specificity which God commanded them because every one of these specified elements was designed to remind them of what they were doing in praising God for the protection that He gave them in those wilderness wanderings. Look at verse 12. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days, and you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bulls from the herd, two rams, fourteen male lambs a year old, they shall be without blemish. And their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the fourteen lambs, and one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the, seventh, on the second day, twelve bulls from the herd, two rams, fourteen male lambs, a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offering for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs, and the prescribed quantities, 
Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offerings. On the third day, eleven bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, a year old without blemish, with the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offerings and its grain offering and its drink offering. Are you getting the picture? Verse 23, the fourth day. Verse 26, on the fifth day. Verse 29, on the sixth day. Verse 32, on the seventh day. Verse 35, on the eighth day you shall have a solemn assembly. This is that solemn Sabbath festival. The crescendo, the the, the final flourishing of the culmination of the entire week. You shall not do any ordinary work, but verse 36, you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, seven male lambs a year without blemish, and the grain offering and the drink offering for the bull, for the ram, and for the lambs in the prescribed quantities, also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. These you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts in addition to your vow offerings and your free will offerings for your burnt offerings and for your grain offerings and for your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. So Moses told the people of Israel everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You say, this seems repetitious. This to some might seem even rather boring as they read through their Bible in a calendar year and they read of this repetitiveness and they say, what's the point? And the point would be, and if you were there, you'd know the point, that every time they sacrificed one of these offerings, every time they gave one of these offerings, whether it was a grain offering or a drink offering, every one of those offerings were prescribed in just that way for them to realize how blessed they had been for their grain, for their drinks, for their animals as food to eat. You know, we often, as we eat, all of us as Christians, either silently or aloud or with our families, we pray to begin a meal, don't we? Why do we do that? Because we're thanking the Lord for that provision. How about having a festival like this every year of your life. How would you like to have a responsibility before God, commanded by Him through this Mosaic legislation, to actually leave your home wherever you were living and that you as a pilgrim would take your entire family and you would sojourn to Jerusalem itself and that you would, as you sojourned, were doing it as a memorial to the Lord, as an offering of thanks, as arduous as that journey would be, and you would go with your family, and you would celebrate with all the other pilgrims in Jerusalem, with all of those offerings being taken, with all of that festival going on, and you would have with all of your brethren around you the opportunity to thank God and praise God and to say thank you for the provision that you've given us. Thank you for the blessing. And some of them would undoubtedly be coming from drought-stricken areas. And some of them would be leaving their home, their home of comfort, the idyllic setting if you were being blessed with a lot of rain and a lot of water and a lot of provision and you would leave that area and you would want to go swiftly to Jerusalem as a pilgrim so that you could say thanks to the Lord for the abundant provision that had been provided you. Not only yourself as the head of a household, but for your wife and for your children and for your extended family. And you'd all want to go there if you were physically able to do so. And you were taking that livestock with you. Or if not, you were buying it as you reached Jerusalem. And you were doing so by Mosaic legislation because you said, even if I weren't commanded to do this, I'd want to do it anyway. Because the Lord has so blessed me. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. You know, even in the rebuilding of the broken walls of Jerusalem, this was something that they were continuing to do as Jews. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. 
Nehemiah 8.1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Notice that, the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read from from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now this is a context in which Israel's walls had been torn down, right? Jerusalem had been rent asunder, and this was the rebuilding of the broken walls and the recapturing, the rediscovering of the Word of God, of the book of the law of God. This would have been a time of great rejoicing and a reinstitution of these very things. Verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood all of these people that I won't read, who were people who were being blessed by the Lord, who were showing up as these pilgrims. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. He had this platform above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. This is one of the reasons why we generally stand for the reading of God's Word. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord and their face with their faces to the ground. Verse 8, They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. They were all both grieved that the law of God had been lost, now joyful that the law of God had been found. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And what did they do? What's the next verse? Verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. All that I had just read you in Leviticus and in Numbers, they read that again in the law. And verse 15 says, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Make yourself temporary homes as you congregate here in Jerusalem to celebrate the Lord's festive occasion. Verse 16, So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. They'd not been able to carry out this festival of the Lord. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. This is the Feast of Booths. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. According to the rule of God. This is not perfunctory. This is not ho-hum. This is not boring. This is the people of God recapturing the law of God, finding it again, and reinstituting what God had commanded them to do. Now why, why would God command them to be so ornate and so deliberate and so specific with all that He was commanding them to do? Why? Because every single year, as they were involved in this festival, they would be called by God to remember His abundant provision of food and water. 
and so much more. Protection from their enemies. And the more they did it, yes, it could become perfunctory. It could become ho-hum. But the more they did it, and the more years they were involved in it, even in the recapturing of this, they would find themselves in the first century. And they would find themselves in this very week, in this very month of their Jewish calendar, in John chapter 7. Turn there now. They would find themselves, as I said, in this very week, in this very month of their calendar. And they would find themselves in Jerusalem as pilgrims. And they would be near the temple and they would be hearing a rabbi speak. And none of that would have been out of the ordinary. And none of that would have been any different than they or their forefathers had done. And they found themselves in this very place. And you know what they were doing? This was the seventh or eighth day. We don't know exactly. And what they were doing was by the first century, the priests, the religious leaders, would have started at the pool of Siloam. We read that in John chapter 5, where the paralytic had been healed. And these priests would line up, and as these pilgrims would watch, the priests in this solemn convocation, this holy week, at the very height of the end of that week, whether it was on the seventh or the eighth day, we don't know, and these priests would be walking in a solemn line, and they would be doing a number of things, but two of those chief things that they would be doing on this very day would be bringing much water and lights. And they would walk into that very area of the temple whereby they would take on that seventh day, probably, and they would give water offerings to the Lord at the altar. And they would be pouring much water onto that altar. And then they would be lighting candles like the grand menorah. And they would be festive and celebratory. And they would say things like this, Oh, how the Lord has blessed us. Look at the water that we're able to drink. Look at the provision of the Lord in giving us our sustenance because of the indispensability of water. You can't live without water. And they would be saying, Thank you, Lord. They would even be singing the Hallel Psalms. And they would be praising the Lord. And maybe it won't be like what they did in Nehemiah's day because... This was reinstituted, and maybe it was for many of them perfunctory. In fact, for so many of them, it seemed as though when Jesus comes on the scene here in John chapter 7, instead of celebrating, instead of hearing Jesus, instead of listening to his teaching, they were grumbling. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. And this, after this, Jesus went into went about in Galilee, I should say. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to what? To kill him. Verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This is that same celebration. This is that same week in the same month that they had always done this, God permitting. And so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, jump out ahead and show everybody who you are. But of course, John tells us, verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. In other words, they had the wrong plan, the wrong idea. They had the right person. But they didn't know what Jesus was about. They didn't know truly who he was. They were not even believing in him at this time. That would be later for them. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. Why? Because you're a part of the world. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. 
And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, John says, not publicly, but in private. He wasn't wanting to be coronated the king right at that moment. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus doesn't want to go up with his brothers. He doesn't want to go with the entourage because these brothers are going to be those pilgrims who, like so many other pilgrims, are going to be going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has an elevation, so every time you go to Jerusalem from wherever you go, you go up. And all of these pilgrims, including Jesus' brothers, are going up to Jerusalem, and he says, I'm not going to go there now. But what I'm going to do is I'll go up there later beyond the fanfare. Because I have some teaching to do. And so he goes in the temple and he begins to teach and they begin to muddle, uh, to, to mutter and grumble about him. And they say even that you have a demon according to verse 20. And Jesus says in verse 21, I did one deed. And what deed was that? He healed a man on the Sabbath according to John chapter 5. That's what he's referring to. I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. What's he saying? What's going on there? What they're saying, what Jesus is saying is this. You know, you talk about how conscriptive you want us to be as Jews regarding the Sabbath. And you say that you've got a really big problem, and they did in John chapter 5, that you, Jesus, made a whole man well on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, well, wait a minute, let me ask you a question. If, in fact, you had a son who was born, and on that day in which he was prescribed by Mosaic legislation to be circumcised, on that, what day? Okay, when? On that seventh day. And if that seventh day actually had to be on the Sabbath, depending on when that little boy was born, what would you do? Would you circumcise him? And clearly they would. They did, in fact, circumcise those boys on that day in which it was prescribed by Moses to circumcise even if it landed on a Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, therefore you worked on that day because you circumcised the boy. Now let me ask you a question. What's more important in God's economy? Circumcising a little boy on the Sabbath or healing a man and his body entirely on the Sabbath. Yes, that's work. And I'm doing the work that my Father has called me to do. And if you're going to ask me, is it wrong to circumcise a boy on a Sabbath day? I say no. And if you ask me if it's wrong to to make an entire man's body well on the Sabbath, I tell you no. You shouldn't have a problem with what I've done. Because you, if you think... I'm violating the Sabbath. You violated the Sabbath yourself. That's his point. And notice the response. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And he is here. And he's speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Messiah? 
But listen to their their answer, verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, when the true Messiah appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. In other words, you know who I am. There's been nothing done in secret. I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me, the Father, is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And boy, they are seething and incensed. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because this hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And the Pharisees, according to verse 32, they they hear the crowd muttering these things about him. They're all saying all kinds of things, some conflicting, some seemingly confirming. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Is he going to go outside of the Jews and their domain and go to the Greeks and begin to teach them? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? And what John is doing in these first 36 verses of chapter 7 is continuing to show the fomenting, seething, arrogance of the Jews against Jesus himself. And you know what Jesus does? On the very day of the culmination of the festival of booths, look at it, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the what day? The great day. This is that day where... They've culminated with everything and they're worshiping Yahweh and this festive occasion and the priests have come and the priests have done this solemn parade of the water offering and they bring this water and they pour it on the altar. And just as they're pouring it on the altar, on the great day, the final day, the festive of all festives, the the year has come to its culminating end and we are thanking Yahweh and they're pouring the water as an offering on the altar. And on that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He didn't say it out of context. He didn't say it in a vacuum. All this water is being poured on the altar and Jesus says, I'm the dispenser of living water. And of course, verse 39 says, Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus says, this living water, I'm the dispenser of it, and this living water is the Holy Spirit. And you know, in the Old Testament, often the idea of water was a reference to the pouring out of the Spirit. The pouring out of the Spirit. You know, in Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 36, where he says, I... This is what Yahweh says to His people. I will cleanse you. I will pour clean water on you. And it says, and I will put My Spirit within you. This is the the coming of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, you'll have within you rivers of living water. He's talking about the greatness of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit is coming. You say, how do I know that? Look at John chapter 20 as we close. Look at John chapter 20. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
And when did they receive the Holy Spirit? Look at Acts chapter 2. And according to Isaiah's prophecy, I wish we had time to look at that. And according to Ezekiel's prophecy, I wish we had time to look at that. And Joel's prophecy in chapter 2, I wish we had time to look at that. Those prophecies say that there would be this one to come, this Holy Spirit, who would be poured out like rivers of living water upon what we now know as the church. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is what Peter is saying. This Peter, who would have known his Jewish Old Testament and who would have read that prophecy of Joel hundreds if not thousands, if not ten thousands of times, and he would say this, verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Think of the pouring out of water. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And and how was the Spirit poured out? Well, the first example, go back to chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And who would these pilgrims have been? They came to Jerusalem. They were coming to feast. They were coming to celebrate, including that culminating celebration of the Feast of Booths, of Tabernacles. Verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The Holy Spirit allowed this gospel, this good news of Jesus death, burial, and resurrection to be heard, this gospel in their own language. And verse 7 says, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us, each of us in his own native language? And where did these pilgrims come from? Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? This, my friends, is the very fulfillment of what Jesus said in John chapter 7. There's going to be a day coming when the Holy Spirit will be released and He'll be poured out on all flesh like water. And God will be glorified because the Holy Spirit will be known internally by every believer in Jesus Christ. That's why when we come to faith in Christ, we have the permanent residency of the Holy Spirit. Never to leave. To take up permanent residence in our lives. And that He takes up permanent residence in the church. So that congregationally, when we sing in in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, we're singing and making melody in our hearts because the Holy Spirit is filling and controlling us. My friends, this is what Jesus meant when He says in John 7, and from you, out of you, will flow rivers of living water. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And I'm not, I'm not yet glorified. And so the Holy Spirit is not yet here, but He will be coming. And He says to them later in John 14 and John 15 and John 16, and the Holy Spirit is coming and He's coming and He's coming. And in John 20, He says, breathe on them, which gives them a foretaste of what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2. And when Acts chapter 2 happens, the Holy Spirit is unleashed on the world. And there are people who are hearing the Word of God in their own native language 
these Jews and these proselytes, these God-fearers, and when they hear the gospel in their own language, this miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit allows them to know the good news of Jesus. And the world, the world as they knew it at that time, and the world ultimately as we will know it in times to come, will see the Holy Spirit spread out like pouring water on all flesh. And the Bible says there'll come a day when it'll, it'll fill the entire globe like the waters fill the sea. And God will be glorified. Let me ask you today. Do you believe that Jesus is the dispenser of living water? Do you believe that Jesus is going to take Holy Spirit power and infuse your life and to show you that Jesus is Lord? If you don't know Jesus as Lord this morning, you have no hope of the blessing, of the replenishment of eternal water in your life. Water is indispensable. And spiritual water is no less indispensable for the souls of men and women. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we can celebrate the feast of booths of the residency of the Holy Spirit every day of the year. We don't have to wait for a festival to occur in our town. And we don't have to just celebrate for a week because the Holy Spirit has taken up permanent residence in our hearts as Christians. And we ask, Heavenly Father, for anyone who's in this place, anyone who hears my voice and who doesn't have currently, presently, the experience of the ever-flowing power of the Holy Spirit, they would know it today as they confess that Jesus is Lord. He is God in human flesh. And that He's the dispenser of eternal living water. And I pray that there would be those today, even in our midst, who would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He is the dispenser of living water, and that He pours out His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon all who repent from their sin and believe in Him. May it be so even today. In Jesus' name, Amen.